This is PT Pro Talk, the podcast for physical therapists who want to improve their clinical skills and be more successful. My name is Mariana Parts, physical therapist and your host. And today I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Chad Cook to talk about the world of profit, perils, and peer review publishing. We explore the intricacies of the publishing process, including the financial aspects authors encounter, such as publication fees. Furthermore, we gain insights into the business side of publishing, shedding light on how publishing companies operate and generate revenue. Dr. Cook also addresses the issue of predatory journals, offering his expertise on this concerning phenomenon. Lastly, we discuss the future of publishing providing valuable perspectives on upcoming trends and developments in the field. If you want to learn about this topic and much more, stick around. Dr. Chad Cook, our guest, is a STEAM clinical researcher, physical therapist, and advocate for the profession. Dr. Cook has an outstanding track record of delivering exceptional clinical care and service with three author or co-author textbooks under his belt, as well as over 330 published peer-reviewed manuscripts. He is a recognized expert in the field. Additionally, Dr. Cook is an international lecturer focusing on orthopedic examination and treatment. I hope you enjoyed the show. The T Pro Talk podcast is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative companies like Systems for PT, the Do Anything, Anytime EMR. Systems for PT develops systems for clinics so you can focus on your patients. Go to systemsforpt.com to schedule a demo today. Fitter First, your first choice for the best Canadian-made rehab and fitness products since 1985. Hi, Ted. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I am very well. It's such a pleasure to be here and to finally meet you. Awesome. Awesome. We finally set a time and I'm excited to talk to you about our topic today. So before we jump right in, just tell us a little bit about yourself for the ones that don't know you. Okay. So I am, uh, I'm Chad Cook. I am a physical therapist. I've been a therapist for 33 years. I'm presently a professor at Duke University, and my primary role there is research. Probably most importantly, I'm a, I have a family, I have a wife that I've also been married 33 years to, and three boys that are uh, grown, two that are in college, and one in med school, and uh, just a very lucky guy. Awesome. Um, and today we are going to discuss the peer-reviewed publishing. So... Can you give the listeners your background in publishing? Sure. Yeah. So my first role in publishing was 2005. I was an associate editor for the journal called Physical Therapy. And then in 2006, I became an editor-in-chief of the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy and held that position for about six years. I took three days off from that and went on to become an associate editor in a journal called Manual Therapy, and I'm presently an associate editor at JOSPT. So I've been, for the last 18 years, I've been involved in with a number of journals. I'm also an editorial board member for four other journals. So I really uh, have had a lot of immersion into 
the peer-reviewed system. Yeah, so you have a lot of experience on that area, and I know you publish a lot of papers too. So can you talk a little bit about the process of publishing a paper and who is involved? Sure. I think it's actually good to understand the process because it's a lot more convoluted than what I think people think. So let's say there's a scientist, a researcher, and they get funding externally to do their research. They do a trial. A typical trial takes two to three years. They complete that work. They write it up. And then they submit it to a peer-reviewed journal. And that journal, at that point, the editor will look at the paper, see if it fits uh, their, the context of the journal, see if it's good enough that it would fit into that journal. If it is, they'll send it out for peer review, and they'll ask for volunteers to peer review it. So the peer reviewers are going to be similar researchers like the person who submitted the paper. There's usually two, sometimes three, or in rare occasions four, They will provide their input. There will often be a back and forth where you have to make edits based on the recommendations of the peer reviewer. And then finally, the paper is either rejected or it's accepted. And that process tends to take anywhere from six months to eight months. It takes a long time to get a paper published. Uh, if a paper is accepted, there are a lot of journals in which you actually have to pay as an author to have that paper published in that journal. That's an open access journal. And that's a whole different discussion um, that's probably worth going into, but uh, some journals you don't have to pay into, but many of the newer journals are moving toward open access and pay to publish. Okay, so that's a long time that you just described. So in average, would take how long to get a paper published since the the beginning of the process? Oh, gosh. If, if you count the time it takes to actually do the research and data collect, it's a good three years that you are with yeah, a project. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, I think that's worth noting because it's easy to criticize research, I think, on the outside, but people don't know how much work actually goes into it. Oh, yes. Yeah, a lot of work. And do you think that the reviewers should be paid? Oh, I do. Uh, so in a given week, I'm asked to review three to five papers, and I do every single one of them for free. I do it because I've committed to the science and I want to give back. But the reviewers, on average, spend a good hour reviewing the paper and making recommendations, and they get nothing for that. So reviewers do it for no pay, But the journal itself makes money from that process. So it's almost, it's very similar to when our students in a higher education setting go on a clinical affiliation. The people that take the students are not paid in most cases. They're, they're doing the work for free. I believe they should be compensated too. And I also believe that reviewers should be compensated. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. If you get three a week a lot of time that you have to spend just reviewing it. Um, and do you think that authors uh, should have to pay to publish? That's a really great question. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I, I, I do believe that in some situations, given an, if you're given the opportunity and it costs a little bit more to make your research available to more people through open access, then paying is not a bad thing. 
Mariana, I think the problem is is the how much they're being asked to pay. So on average, it's right. about twenty three hundred dollars to get a paper to pay for a paper to get it accepted. That's the average. But there are some journals like Nature is close to twelve thousand dollars to publish a paper. And I, I think that's ridiculous. Oh my god. Yeah, it, it's yes. It's, and it costs somewhere between two hundred to a thousand dollars for that publishing company to to do the work to get that paper out there to pay the editor to pay the copy editor. So they're making a lot of money. So I think it's okay to charge the author. I think maybe they're charging the authors too much right now. Yes, that's an insane amount of money. Um, and on those that charge the authors, just the ones with open access, is that right? It is, and that allows the paper to be uh, freely available to the public, and, and you probably feel the same way I do. The science needs to be available to the public. Uh, if the work is out there, then the people need to be able to have access to the work. If the federal government yeah, supports research, then that research should be available to the public because the public tax dollars actually paid for that. But it's not always the case. There are, there are many journals in which the, the work is actually firewalled. You can't get access to it. Yes. That's, that's unfortunately for the clinicians that wanted to get access to the information. Um, and then I heard that in Germany, the journals pay authors to publish. And why doesn't that occur here? And you're right. Um, that Actually, that you're correct. There, in many cases, the the unique journals in Germany will actually pay their authors um, a fee because they're they're taking their work and they're putting it in their journal. I'm not really sure why it doesn't happen anywhere else. The big areas where most of the medical journals are are either out of Great Britain or out of the United States, and and China has grown a lot recently with their journals too. And none of their models are similar to Germany. They don't pay people to publish. It's all either you pay or you submit your work voluntarily. So I'm, uh -huh. I think the biggest reason why they don't do that in the United States, Great Britain, or China is because it's so easy to make money. So this may s stun you, but publishing companies are really only five that control most of the biomedical publishing like Elsevier, Wiley, Springer, um, Taylor & Francis, and then I think a group called CNM. And they control most of the publishing, and their profit margins are over 36%. So they're making a greater profit margin than Apple and Google and Amazon and all these really large companies. They make somewhere between 100 to wow. $200 billion a year in profits. So I doubt wow. they're... I don't oh think they're going goodness. to change their model. It's it's stunning, isn't it's it? It's working well for them. Why they yes, why they would if they're making that much money. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that, crazy. I think that's been one of the biggest complaints and and getting to your earlier question of should uh peer reviewers be paid? Absolutely. I mean there is money there to pay a peer reviewer, but they're they're not yeah. paid anything. It's voluntary. Yeah. And do you think that maybe just thinking here a lot that the in Germany, uh, they don't have that many authors and they want to stimulate people to publish? 
and versus here maybe they have more people researching and 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 doing the work so they don't feel like they have to incentivize people to publish i think you may be onto something uh, i think that may be correct i have some colleagues out of germany who i could ask but i've never asked that question uh, i think potentially too the german journals are interested in a a directed um journal. In other words, they solicit work that they want to put into a special issue or a directed issue, but I'm sure okay. you probably have some German listeners that will know the answer to that question. I, I really don't know the answer. I know that there's been a lot of negative press recently with the peer review publishing. Can you give us like some thoughts on why this is the case? I think there are several reasons. Uh, for starters, they make a lot of money And people lose a lot of money in the process. The authors who have to pay, peer reviewers who aren't paid, you know, for many of the reasons we just discussed, I think it seems like researchers are being taken advantage of. The second thing is because it's become such big industry, you've seen a, the growth of a lot of questionable journals. Uh, now, even going beyond predatory journals, which is a whole different topic And these are fake journals who really exist just to take the money from the researchers, and there's no true peer review. But there are journals exist on a spectrum, right? There's some really high quality journals that really are restrictive on the quality that goes into them. And then there are journals that will basically take anything, and the science is very weak. And, uh -huh. and then there's some work in the middle that is it's very questionable. They they just exist to make money, and these these publishing companies will sometimes publish 10,000, 15,000 papers a year and just to essentially just to make money. And it's less about the science and it's more about profit. And I think most scientists have concerns about that because what we're seeing is a very watered down product in research. So I think that's the biggest reason. How do they make money, these journals? Is with the authors paying to publish and then they selling uh, the, the, the journal to the public? Is that like the main ways that they get revenue? Yeah, the biggest money they make is through library uh, subscriptions. So if you're an academic institution, you're going to want to have all the major journals in your library so that your, um, your students can have access to it, so you're faculty can actually pull the data and, and, and pull the studies so they can read them. And if you don't have those, then you'll hear a lot of complaints because, you know, if you're a, a really stellar institution, you want to have all the available research. But the cost associated with a library subscription is substantial. And there have been several uh, universities that have stood up against Elsevier and other companies and said, we're not paying your fees. We're not paying your rates. And in almost every case, the publishing companies still win because there are only five of them and they control almost all the science. So the big money is through library subscriptions, additional money through authors. And then that third way, which you kind of mentioned before, when clinicians are looking to get access to a paper and it's firewalled and it says you can buy this paper for $48 or $68 or something like that, they make a little money off of that as well. Yeah. And and how do you know, like talking about what you were saying before, 
how do you know if the publishing company is serious? Like, how do you know if they are not just one of those companies that are there for the profit uh, versus the ones that are serious and publish good work? It's a great question. It isn't as easy as what one thinks. Um, we're, we're really seeing the blurring of lines between what is a reputable publishing company versus one that is questionable. Let me give you an example. Uh -huh. For the last couple of years, a lot of people have published in a, in a group called MDPI. And it's a publishing group that they published, I think, 150 special issues last year. They published thousands of articles. And it has this questionable peer review process. Well, just this year, uh, it, it has been suggested that they're probably predatory and of lower quality. And it is suggested that the scientists will stay away from those. For the longest time, though, they were kind of in the middle, and people didn't know if they should publish there or not. So people did, uh, because the it's easier to get a paper in and there versus somewhere else. I think you have to look at the publishing company. So if it's Elsevier, Springer, somebody like that, they tend to have reputable journals affiliated with it. If that journal is also affiliated with a scientific organization that you're familiar with, like if it's a if it's affiliated with the American Physical Therapy Association, or if it's affiliated with the Academy of Orthopedics, then you know that the organization will assure that the quality is there because their reputation is on the line. So I look for those things when I consider publishing in a journal. I tend to publish in just a few journals and try not to dabble in a bunch of different ones that I'm not familiar with. And you know, there are over 11,000 journals. So it's really, I mean, there are so many now that it's almost impossible to know all the journals. That's a lot. 11,000 journals. And I guess, why do you think that people don't create more publishing uh, companies if they are just dominated by these five? Could that be part of like a possible solution for that? Um control and how they charge so much? There, there have been, there used to be more, uh, but the big five have consolidated. They've purchased those. Like I worked for Manny uh -huh. when I was the editor-in-chief. Manny is far, part of Taylor and Francis now. So a lot of the publishing companies that were independent have been kind of pulled in. And it's, it's almost like the automobile in industry, right? There used to be 50, 60 automotive makers in the United States. And now there are primarily three. So it, it, it's common, I think, in business to, that you see kind of a paring down of that. I'm not sure uh -huh. if adding more publishing companies will make a huge difference unless the model changes. But we've seen uh, uh, the big thing has been consolidation of publishing companies. Yeah. And it, it looks like now it's a lot about the business since they are so profitable. It's I'm still thinking about those big numbers that you mentioned before. So I think it's really easy to lose track of quality and just think about the profit versus the science. I agree. I, I think it's concerning. I think it's very concerning. And the, especially with respect to how does this influence science? And if we can just take a step to the side, if it becomes easier to publish your work, and if we're in an academic situation, if you're a, a faculty member, your currency is grant funding and publishing. So the more publications you get, the easier it is for you to rank up 
and to get a higher pay raise and a number of other things. So you've seen some faculty that have taken the bait and are publishing in some of these weaker journals, these predatory journals, so they can put it on their CV. And it's happening, happening so quickly that it's very difficult for promotion and tenure committees to really know what's going on. They don't know which journals are legitimate journals, which aren't. There aren't any blacklists out now that say this, these journals are bad, these journals are good. So it takes somebody who really understands the industry well. And unfortunately, there aren't that many people like that. So we're, we're in a difficult time. I think things are changing quite a bit. And when you mention predatory journals, uh, what do you mean by that? Great question. So it's a term that was coined by Jeffrey Beal, who was a librarian. And so he really understood, he, he's the type of person who really understands publishing, right? Because he's the one who negotiates with publishing companies. He started seeing a lot of companies he'd never heard of that had very questionable peer-reviewed practices. So what I described very early about it going to peer-reviewed uh, individuals and they reviewed the paper and it, it was back and forth and it took six to eight months, he was noticing that a lot of the work was being published in a week or two weeks. And we know that you can't go through a full peer review and changing of the information and, and all of this process. It had to have skipped the peer-reviewed part. So predatory journals are those who don't have a true peer review. So there's not scientific oversight. It purely just takes the paper and publishes it. And if you don't mind, I'll give you an example of, of a sting that we put together. We, we actually wrote a fake paper. And in the paper, we, we had a person who was dead for five years. And in, in the paper, we talk about using manual therapy on this dead person. And we brought him back to life. And we, and we had all of these jokes and silly things written into the paper. We had pictures of ger seeds germinating. We had a, a paint-by-number picture, nothing that had anything to do with the situation. And the paper was accepted in less than a week in one of the predatory journals. So, I oh, mean, wow. if, they would, if they take a completely outlandish paper like this, then they're also going to take data that were just slightly tweaked or slightly changed so that it contributes to misinformation. In fact, there's been a recent paper that was retracted on COVID vaccinations, and it was erroneous information that said thousands of people died from COVID vaccinations, which is not true. But this was published in one of those journals that did not have a strong peer review. So it leads to all of this misinformation, and it really erodes good science. So you're saying it's strong peer-reviewed. It looks like they haven't even read the paper. How they would didn't. they allow you to publish that paper? Again, <laughs> all they have to do is read it, and they realize they're being conned from our end of it. But I don't think they even read it. They just they basically put it together like a real paper and then put it out there. And sadly... That's unbelievable. All, oh, I mean, out of my 340 papers... And that's not even a real paper. I'm probably known for that paper more than anything. And that's not even a real paper. <laughs> I'll have to look for that paper now. <laughs> Don't look for it. <laughs> that's insane. 
and you're saying that you review the the paper. So how do they select who reviews the papers? Is that a process? Are people are just invited? Are they volunteer? So how does you, it work? When you're you are a volunteer, so you agree to be part of the review team for a journal, and you go in, you type up what your expertise is, what your background is, and then you give selected areas where you might say, I will, I I can review epidemiology, I can review physical therapy. I can review statistics. All of this goes into a computer system. And when a paper comes in, they look at matches, potential reviewer matches that would be good um, people to include as a peer reviewer. They, they are then remind, uh, invited to review the paper. They have an opportunity to say, yes, I'll review this paper. Or they can say, no, it, it's not really in my area. So eventually, you get enough people that agree to review they finish the review process, and as I mentioned, it often takes months for this to occur. Uh, okay. But typically, at least you have people who are have some expertise in the area that you're publishing. Okay, and and when you said before that you have some papers that are open and some papers that are uh, you have to pay to get access, do you think that this peer-reviewed publishing? Uh, they do a good job in getting science out to the readers? Or you feel like most are still like not getting out in front of people? I So I think in general, publishing gets it out a little bit. All right. So the, the information's out there. I, th I think there are two things that are really challenging. The first one is, and I've seen different numbers, but somewhere between 1.6 to 2.4 million papers are published every year. So that that's a lot of papers, and there's just no a way yeah. no one can read all of that. And just low back pain, there are about forty thousand papers published every year. So even if you're an expert in low back pain, it's almost impossible to re to read all of those papers. So part of the problem is there's there's just too much. There's too much information. So that's never going to get to the clinicians. It's never going to get to the public. It's never going because there's just too much. This, the second challenge, I think, is that not everybody is good at either reading the paper or pursuing that information. So most physical therapists, for example, don't get their information from PubMed or from articles. They get it from continuing education courses. And those are, that's a wild card, right? You can, you can get a thousand different good and bad things in a, in a con ed course. But most people don't acquire their information from peer-reviewed publishing. So there has to be a, another step involved where we push that information into clinical practice. This is why I think we hear that it often takes 17 years before evidence actually gets placed into clinical practice. It's also why I don't have a problem with something like social media, which speeds that process up, I think, because it in introduces people to research that they may have never heard about or read. Yeah. Well, I guess it would be great to create a continuum education cards just with updates of literature so people can... can stay up today because it is impossible and and it's just... Too many things, and as you said, too many different journals. So I feel like people just stick with the most common ones that they know uh, because it's just too many, and we 
normal clinicians, like they don't understand research in depth, they're not going to know how to differentiate the good journals and bad journals. You just know the most famous ones, the one that we know, okay, this paper is good because it was published here. But other than that, I feel it's just super hard to, to number one, stay up, stay up to date. And number two, to really be able to tell if the journal is a good quality journal, if it's serious or if it's just in the industry of making money because, as you said, they do make a lot of money. I'm in full agreement with you. And I also don't think it's fair for clinicians who work 50 hours a week and expect them to read every night and every weekend just to stay on top of the literature, knowing that they're still never going to be able to stay on top of the literature because there's just too much. So I just think it's, you said you use the term impossible. I agree. I think it's almost impossible. I'm I'm an academic, so I'm paid to read, and I can't stay on top of everything. And I read probably 20, 25 articles a week, but I still feel like I'm always scrambling. I still have people saying, have you read this paper? I'm like, I didn't even know about that paper. So it's exceptionally difficult, I think. Do you have any ideas, suggestions to uh, how we could what we could do to improve the situation? I do. I, I, I've seen a lot of people that have taken the initiative to break down that barrier between it just got published and then I hope it trickles into the clinical or the public community. People are using infographics, a single-page infographic, which tell the story of the findings of the paper. I think those are incredibly useful. I think podcasts are exceptionally useful because somebody's in their car, especially one where they can listen to during their time to work and then back. I think those are good. I think Twitter is very effective in pushing information. Uh, there's, you know, there's only so much you can say on Twitter, but it can certainly lead the horse to water if, if, if they read something that they're interested in. And I think YouTube is another opportunity to move in that direction. That's why I actually support social media. I know there's a long, a lot of incorrect information, misinformation on social media, but it is it really does speed the process up of assimilating some of this information. And there is also like podcasts that they are just specific to papers and like summarizing science, which is great because we are commuting, driving, cleaning the house, cooking, whatever you're doing, you can just listen to it. It's very easy to digest. I was yep. cooking today, listening to your previous podcast. I was like, you're just, you know, we are, we are busy. We have to find a way to stay up today. So <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like, good, I like podcasts a good solution. Yeah. Um, and do you believe in the idea of publish or perish for academia? Yeah. Um, that's a common term used, I think for in a tier one environment. So in a research-based institution, I do believe publisher parish is proper. It's It does exist. I would see, I would even say get funding or parish would probably even be a more appropriate statement. But yes, you are expected to publish. You are, if you work at Duke, you are expected to publish. There's no excuse um, for individuals who don't do research. Um, you are expected to be a creator a person who creates information, not just someone who teaches information. 
And I do believe that's important. In smaller institutions, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent. So institutions that are more teaching-related, um, maybe a DPT program that is in a small institution that doesn't have a, a really uh, strong scholarly culture, um, many of those people can stay and, and teach in that environment without losing their position and, and rank up um, over time. So it depends on the institution, I think. And like, um, so do usually institutions tell you in which journals you have to publish? Uh, because like, okay, if you want to publish, you can just go to that journals that we talked about that we don't want to. But if there is always a way if you have to publish papers, it would be probably easier to just publish on that journals that are quick. So I was just curious to, to know if they, they require you to publish in certain types of journals or like how does that work? That also depends on the institution. So there are some institutions, especially in Europe, that require you to publish in a Q1 journal. So journals are ranked on how um, strong they are. So a Q1 would be the best, a Q4 or the fourth quarter journal. So the top 25% would be here, the lowest 25% would, would be here. And then there's a Q2 and a Q3. So some, for a promotion and tenure, They require you to only publish in Q1 journals. Some will require you to only count the publications in those journals who have a, an impact factor above three or an impact factor above four. So it depends on the institution. And in, in some cases within institutions, it depends on the department. I was at a department previously at Duke that only counted papers that had impact factors above three. The one that I'm in now, they don't do that. They don't restrict that. But yes, indeed, it does matter the quality of the journal that you publish in. Yeah, it makes sense. And they should require to publish on good papers because otherwise you're just going to be pushing on those journals that we know are not very serious. And, and what do you think um, about the future, that the future will be for publishing? And how is it going to change based on everything that we talked about, about how much companies are making, how much uh, authors have to pay to publish, and the amount of papers that are coming out every year? So I'm going to answer it by saying I don't know. And, and I, but I won't stop there. I'll throw some ideas out. And I'm certainly... Probably not the, I'm not the prime mover in this area. There are a lot of really smart people that are thinking of creative ways to improve the problem that we have. There are scientific organizations that have said enough. We're not, we are not publishing in any of these for-profit journals anymore. We're, we're going to create our own non-for-profit journal so that all the proceeds go back into the science and that we want to assure that the science is of high quality. So there are people that are, are looking at different, different ways. There, there's open science. There is data sharing to make sure that people are on the up and up when they publish their work. So you share the data that you have. Uh, there are a lot of different ways. But to getting back to your question is, do you think it's, it will change? I think it has to change. I think at some point the, the system is broken. We don't know a better way to go forward 
But between you and me, I was on a panel discussion about 15 years ago, and this was the exact same topic, and nobody knew the answer then either. So it just keeps getting progressively worse, and we haven't figured it out yet. But something's going to change. Maybe the, the authors get together and and stay strong on their position, create maybe their own journal. Maybe something would change. I think there's some. So you don't give that. that much power to the the big journals. And I want to say, not all journals. For example, JOSPT is a great journal. They are, they really believe in the science. Their editor is an impeccable editor. The work they do is very, very strong. And I am affiliated with JOSPT, but I'm affiliated with it because it's a great journal. There are others that are great journals too. Like British Journal of Sports Medicine is a terrific journal. They're very um, strict about what goes into the journal. They like to publish work that is meaningful. Uh, the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehab is another really good journal. I think that they do things the right way. So there are solid journals out there. Not all journals are um, money hungry and really push for profits. JOSPT has started a JOSPT Open, which is an open access journal, but they're only requiring a $1,000 article processing fee, which is a full $1,300 less than the average amount. So I think most authors can afford that to have work that's open access to everyone. And then um, I, I, li I like the direction that they're going. Yeah. Well, I had no idea that they would charge still like that much because they are just, what is their cost, right? They don't have like a, it doesn't seem like they have a, like a big cost. So JOSPT, they have a typical publication, which is not open access. And you get it if you're an orthopedic section member, you can have access to the journal. But if you or if you publish a paper or if I published a paper and we wanted all people, even outside of those individuals in the orthopedic academy to have access to that paper, even outside all of the journals that have subscriptions to JOSPT, we would pay the $1,000 to have it open access. That's a pretty good deal. Um, that way, a lot of people will read your work. People are more likely to cite your work because you want your work read and cited. Over 50% of the publications that occur each year are never even read beyond the author and the peer reviewer. No one ever even downloads the paper to read it. It just languishes in a black hole. And no author wants that with all the work they put into publishing. So open access is attractive, but it can be done in a way that doesn't really pilfer the authors. Yeah, because in that process, it seems like the burden is on the author because they have to spend their time and money and effort to create the paper. Then they have to pay to submit it and to have open access and... It just looks like a good deal for the journal. <laughs> yep. Look, science is not cheap. I mean, I'm in one randomized controlled trial that's going to end up costing millions of dollars. And if you have to take money away from the science so that you can pay to have a paper published, then that's less than you can do for the science sake. And that's one of the biggest complaints is that you know, there's only a certain amount of money to go around, and if we're using all of that money to pay for publishing, 
then it's going to cheat the science. And so that's a consideration too with respect to the the high cost associated with publishing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Chad, before we transition to the final questions, do you have anything else, any consideration about everything that we just talked? Yeah, I, I, again, I want to just reiterate that it's easy to shoot arrows at peer-reviewed publishing, and there are some warts. And there are some challenges. There are some ethical issues. There are fake papers. There's fraud. There's predatory journals. But there's also a lot of good science. And the reason why people care, people like me, is I, I don't want the good science to compete with the bad science. And I don't want publishing companies to be the catalyst on why there's more bad science out there. So I, I just really want to frame it that way that this is a credibility issue. And if you're a researcher, the kiss of death is if people don't take you seriously as a researcher. They don't think your work is credible. So it really does matter where you publish it. It matters what other people are doing because I liken this to the steroid era in baseball. So if I can't make a baseball reference, then I'm not doing my job, all right? But during the steroid era, there were a few people that took steroids and they completely discredited all the other players during that era, even those who didn't take steroids. My concern is, is if we have kind of a janky system, that we, we start discrediting credible work. And, and that's where we're drifting, and we need to halt that if we can. Yeah. And asking you the final questions... Now it's going to be a difficult resource of information. Any Anything in particular that you like? <laughs> uh -huh. I was going to say any paper that you like. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I get to ask that question a lot. Where do you get your information? And I, I just go on PubMed and I look for topics that I'm interested in. And then I look at the credibility of the authors and I look at the credibility of the journal. And then I'll pull that information from there. And it really depends on what I'm working on. Um, so with respect to science, that's what I do. Outside of that, I tend to, I, I watch, I listen to a lot of podcasts because I think it's a shortcut to get into the author's heads and to really find out what people are doing. I really believe in podcasts. And the most of the podcasts I listen to are, are economics podcasts. Um, I Like uh, the journal of the Wall Street Journal, I listen to that. Um, I listen to uh, The Economist. I think a person can learn a lot from those, and that are also, you know, that that are also specific to healthcare. So that podcasts are a big place, and then PubMed. Awesome. And what would be the best advice that you give to clinicians that are starting their careers? So that could be general, or could be if you have any advice. Um, specific about research, anything that you think would be relevant? Well, I think with respect to research, I think it's important uh, that let people marinate and learn the profession first before they get into research. Uh, because I think the best researchers are those that maybe have a, a strong clinical context and, and have a, I, I was a clinician for 10 years before I got into research. And I think it really helped, helped shape my research questions. With respect to what I would tell a new clinician, 
Um, and I really firmly believe this, and I hope it, when I say this, it comes across the right way. I think we're in an, in an era where we teach uh, students ideologies that people should be this. And then students get out and they believe that the patients should match the clinician's ideology. I don't believe that's why physical therapists should get into being a physical therapist. I believe you should get into it to help the patient. So I believe that new clinicians, the first thing they should recognize is the second most important person in that room is them. And the most important person is the patient. And you work with that patient, regardless of what you think, feel, or believe about that person in front of you, they're the most important person. And they're the person that you are there to help, and you must find a way to help them, not find a way to make them believe what you believe. Yeah, that's a great advice because sometimes I think BTs are so stuck in their ideas and they think that that technique is the best, but sometimes the patient it's, doesn't want that, doesn't like touch, and you want to do manual therapy. Some people just say, I don't like you to touch me, I don't want to touch. And you just have to kind of feel what the patient needs and and be open to let them guide the treatment. Yep, fully agree. Yeah. And the last question, what personal qualities or abilities that you think are important to become a successful PT? So I think a lot. There are a lot of them. I think empathy is critical. I, the best clinicians that I've seen, and certainly the the caregivers that I would want treating me or my family would be those that have realistic, legitimate empathy for the for their patients. I I believe people who I, I really do believe the best clinicians are those that are curious, who do not feel they know everything. They're constantly looking for a way to improve on what they do and they are never satisfied with their, their level of knowledge. And th those are the best researchers too, by the way. The greatest researchers I know are, are the ones that are just absolutely plagued by ideas that they have and they have to figure out a way to investigate that idea. Clinicians can do that as well and constantly looking, looking for ways to improve how they manage their patients. Uh, I think those two things are critical. I think being a good colleague is critical as well. So a person who is easy to work with, who is there for you, being a PT is not an easy job. And if if you work with a bunch of stinkers, I mean, that makes your job even more difficult. So having colleagues that are supportive of you, that are, that are you know, a very collegial person, a person that has your back, um, I think those are pretty amazing qualities. Awesome. Um, Chad, if people want to learn more about you or contact you, how can they find you? So I'm only on one, I'm really only active on one social media platform, and that's Twitter. And that's at Chad Cook PT. So if you want to follow me, uh, I don't tweet a lot. I don't tweet a, a lot of nonsense. Um, I tweet things that are important to me. And, uh, and then also if you go to PubMed and you type in my name, I, I do publish a lot. Uh, someone told me the other day that I publish a lot. I do a lot of research on the 
day-to-day stuff we do as PTs. And I said, thank you, because that, that is what I do. And so a lot of the work I do, I think, is relevant to what we do. Yeah. And that's, I guess, how it should be. It's very practical for your, your day-to-day. It's really helping uh, people that are practicing, right? Perfect. Uh, Chad, thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us. I'm super happy that we made this happen. So I appreciate your, your time. Thanks for talking about peer-reviewed publishing. Um, I really appreciate it, and uh, it's been wonderful to meet you. That's all for today's episode of PT Pro Talk. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when we release future episodes. You can also join our email list to receive updates and new episodes at ptprotalk.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a rating or review and share with other clinicians you think might benefit from this conversation. We are always working to deliver you a better show and would love to hear your thoughts. If you have a moment, please help us by answering a quick survey and let us know what topics and people you'd like to hear, things you like about the show, and how we can improve. Thank you all of you who have already responded to the survey. It is very helpful. Also, on the show notes, you can find the guest's contact information and favorite resources, links for the survey, our social media, YouTube channel where you can watch the whole episode, and our website where you can find more information about the podcast. Thanks again for listening and until next time.